Hello and welcome to History of Sydney, available on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm Ilana Pender-Rose. And I'm Dr Robert Jones. And this week we find ourselves looking at a subject that, although it's not so little known, is nevertheless a significant and in some ways pivotal moment in the history of the city of Sydney, that of the Japanese submarine attack of May to June 1942. For a city and a nation that had never come under direct attack from a foreign aggressor that was sparsely populated and isolated, and which still believed in the ailing abilities of the British motherland to defend it, this event came as a harsh lesson in the way the world around us was changing. It originated, somewhat ironically, in a fear that dated back to the very beginnings of Australia as a nation, that of the perceived threat posed by nearby Asia and its many peoples. Historically dominated by Europe's colonial powers, this vast continent and its nearby islands had begun to fall prey to the expansionist designs of the Imperial Japanese Empire as early as September 1931, when Japanese troops occupied the Chinese province of Inner Manchuria. This was followed in July 1937 by a full-blown invasion of China, which was still in progress when Australia joined Britain in declaring war on Germany in September 1939. Wary though its leaders were of Japanese ambitions in the region, Australia was as yet far more committed to its imperial obligations overseas than it was to its own defence, an oversight that would become all too clear in time. Dr Jones, just what was the feeling in Sydney at the outbreak of war? How is it that we found ourselves fighting Germany instead of Japan in 1939? Well, in a sense, I think the Second World War for Australia began very much like the first, as an imperial call to arms for us to rally together and support Britain, the mother country. There was still no real distinct to be drawn between what it meant to be Australian and what it meant to be British at this stage. And so I think Sydney siders, much like all Australians at the time, took it as a matter of course that any foreign conflict that involved Britain would naturally involve Australia. Where I think there is a difference to be highlighted between the First and Second World War experience, at least in the beginning, is that there were a substantial number of Australians that had already witnessed the horrors of war, that knew what it was about, and I think they made quite certain that the new generation that was rushing to join the Colours in 1939 knew precisely what they were getting themselves into. This didn't stop them, of course, from enlisting in significant numbers and doing their duty, and I think they are to be commended for that fact. I don't think one can really underestimate the impact that the First World War had on the Australian psyche. The second Australian imperial force, much like the first, was of course placed at the disposal of Britain, and this is quickly thrown into the breach to good effect against enemy forces in North Africa in 1941, later in Greece, Crete, and the Middle East too. Whilst we could talk all day about the ups and downs of these campaigns, about the valuable contribution that Australians made to the Allied cause, this isn't really what we're here to talk about. And, and to anyone who wants to learn more about these events, I would highly recommend the detailed war correspondences of one of our former subjects, Kenneth Slesser, as a guide. What I would say is that Australian foreign policy at the beginning of World War II was guided by the belief that Britain's interests came first and by the outdated assumption that Britain had the capacity to defend Australia in the event of a Japanese attack. Germany, what's more, as a European power, I think was always going to be held in higher esteem than Japan, an Asian one, in spite of the fact that Japan was every bit as much the modern industrial powerhouse as any of its Western contemporaries, and any threat it posed to the region was to be taken very seriously indeed. Tell me, Dr Jones, what was it that made Japan such a threat at this time. What were the aims of its leaders in expanding Japanese influence into Asia and the Pacific? 
Well, if we look at Australia in 1939, at the beginning of the Second World War, we have a nation of about 7 million people. Japan, which, as we all know, is a fraction of the size of our continent, even once you discount the fact that most of Australia is desert, was a nation of 70 million, and with very few natural resources of their own, it seems only logical that its leaders should have looked beyond their own shores to meet the needs of the nation's voluminous population. Why they felt the need to resort to a policy of aggressive expansion rather than obtaining what it needed through trade and investment abroad or some other peaceful means is perhaps a more significant question. At its simplest, I think it would be fair to say that the men who governed Japan during the 1930s and early 1940s were in a way their own worst enemy. They were militaristic elites who believed that their nation and its people were superior to all others on earth. This was partially inspired by their religion and by the belief held by most Japanese people at the time that the Emperor of Japan was literally a god. Offset by this was a traditional distrust of the West, which had for years been exploiting and deriding the East and its people. Japan had managed for centuries to remain fairly aloof from foreign incursions. Uh, it emerges from an extended period of isolation in the latter half of the 19th century, during a period of rapid modernization, known as the Meiji Restoration, in which it adopts many of the then trappings of Western society, including a Western-style army and navy, and later an air force. The irony of this, at least where the men who led Japan into the Second World War are concerned, is that, though its leaders believed themselves to be superior to their Western counterparts, it was really only by learning from the West that Japan was able to successfully wage war as well as it did. Now, if we ask ourselves why the Japanese were so confrontational at this particular time, during the 1930s and early 1940s, and not before, the answer lies, as in the case of so many other countries, in the impact that was made by the Great Depression. This is the same economic disaster which helped to bring people like Hitler and the Nazis to power in Germany, and which helped to instill a large number of people around the world, some Australians included, with a sense of dissatisfaction with democracy and political liberalism, which they blamed for the economic crisis. Some chose to move to the left, towards socialism and communism, as it was then being perpetuated in the Soviet Union, others in the opposite direction, towards right-wing authoritarianism, and this is really what happens in Japan. Uh, the military there had, since its very inception during the latter half of the 19th century, maintained an independence from the civil administration, and it's during the 1930s that its grip really begins to tighten on Japanese society, during the so-called period of government by assassination, in which a number of key politicians who are attempting to rein in the authority of the military seem to miraculously wind up dead in quick succession. Life in Japan takes on a very martial character during this period, censorship is ramped up, and most importantly of all, there is a massive campaign to militarise the nation, to instil in Japanese children a deep-seated sense of patriotic duty to their people and to the emperor. By the time that War with the United States comes about in 1941, there's almost a fanatical sense of duty on the part of the average Japanese soldier to fight and to die and to never surrender, and this I think helps us to understand the men who invaded Sydney Harbour during the submarine attack of 1942. The decade between 1931, when Japan's aggressive land grab first began, and 1941, when it attacked the United States Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, has often been termed the Dark Valley. In February 1933, Japan withdrew its delegation from the League of Nations, following a recommendation by the multinational body that it withdraw its troops from Manchuria. In December 1936, its leaders signed an anti-Soviet pact with Nazi Germany, thereby helping to safeguard itself from Russian influence in its upcoming invasion of China. 
The Japanese army, which had always favoured expansion onto the Asian mainland, was now challenged by the navy, which favoured expansion into the South Pacific, a move which would inevitably bring it into conflict with the United States. The US had always opposed Japan's aggression, and following the whirlwind German victory over France in June 1940 and the Japanese occupation of French Indochina, its leaders responded by restricting the supplies of oil that were being shipped to Japan from American wells. Japanese leaders, in the face of potentially crippling sanctions, were left with two alternatives, back down and relinquish their new territories, or strike hard and fast against US forces in a bid to overwhelm their much stronger opponent before it had an opportunity to respond. On the 7th of December 1941, Japanese planes took off from six aircraft carriers, hoping to decimate the United States fleet at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Japanese troops, meanwhile, set about invading the US-held territories of Guam, the Philippines and Wake Island, as well as a number of European colonies, including the British possessions of Malaya, Singapore and Hong Kong. Central to Britain's defence strategy in the Pacific and to Australia's was the fortress naval base at Singapore, which fell to Japanese forces on the 15th of February 1942 in what has often been regarded as the worst disaster in British military history, given that it involved the capitulation of over 85,000 British and Dominion troops. The fate of Australia now hung in the balance, with a substantial number of its troops having been surrendered at Singapore, whilst Japanese forces continued to press southwards towards Papua New Guinea. Yes, I think if we consider these terrible events for a moment, there really was no precedent to what was happening in the Pacific in 1941-42. Australia had never really faced a threat like this before. It had always perhaps entertained fears of a possible incursion from other colonial powers like France or even Russia back in the early days of settlement, or perhaps even some kind of bizarre strike for world domination on the part of Germany during the First World War. But these, these were really never very convincing threats. Australia was really too remote, too bereft of resources, or though it's then seemed, to really register on European radars. Its biggest export at the time of the Second World War was wool, and the harshness of the Australian environment and climate didn't really do much to recommend it to foreign aggressors. The way the Japanese viewed Australia during its expansion into Southeast Asia was not therefore as a major opponent, uh, nor even as a potential satellite, really. Uh, it was far too far away, far too sparsely populated and habitable for that purpose. What it did represent, however, was a potential base of operations for Allied forces in the region, a costly nuisance to Japanese ambitions, if you like. And I think this is why it was targeted in the way that it was. On the 19th of February 1942, some four days after the fall of Singapore, the first Japanese bombing raid takes place on Darwin, the first ever on Australian soil. This would be the first of around 60 bombing raids that would take place over the city during the next two years of war. When these first began, they, they were really intended as a prelude to the coming invasion of New Guinea, but this was soon halted after the Battle of the Coral Sea in May 1942, in which a Japanese force was prevented from landing at Port Moresby. Further events at the Battle of Midway the following month ensured that the Japanese naval strategy was inextricably altered thereafter, from that of major fleet engagements, from which decisive victories were expected but thankfully never achieved, to that of harbour infiltration and the harassment of enemy shipping lanes. And I think this is where the role of submarines, particularly midget submarines, became 
far more important. Even after the discovery and assessment of several unique wreck sites, both during and after the war, many aspects of Japan's secret campaign beneath the waves remain shrouded in mystery, the original archival records having perished or been destroyed. The Japanese Midget Submarine Association has also long since been disbanded, and with the passing and elderly age of its few remaining members, and oral testimonies are therefore equally scarce. Dr Jones, what do we really know about these Japanese midget submarines that entered Sydney Harbour in 1942? Just how important were they to the Japanese war effort overall? One of the reasons I find the midget submarine attack on Sydney Harbour in mid-42 so interesting is that it represents a side to the Japanese war effort that doesn't really get talked about that much. The more covert, more subtle side to their military strategy. When we think of Japanese soldiers in action, we think of samurai warriors going charging in, screaming, hoping to overwhelm their enemy by sheer enthusiasm, or even of perhaps large battleships and aircraft carriers hoping to live, deliver some sort of fatal hammer blow to their US rival. We really don't consider the more nuanced aspects of Japanese strategy. German naval strategy, by comparison, was incredibly nuanced in the way that it attempted, after some initial stumbling, to strangle Britain into submission through submarine blockade, rather than through costly fleet engagements. One reason for this was that it always recognised its strategic inferiority to other navies like the Royal Navy. Japan didn't. It begins the war with a big, impressive battle fleet that it feels it can win the war with in one decisive engagement. In support of this fleet, it of course has an array of submersibles at its disposal, one of the most very submarine fleets in the world at this time. These include manned torpedoes, midget subs, medium-range attack subs, submarines that can carry aircraft, all sorts of variations. That Japan chooses to deploy these submarines in the early phases of the war as purely support units, rather than as lone raiders or attack forces in their own right, says a lot about the way they were hoping to fight the war at that stage. Uh, I think it's a, it's a little-known fact that five midget submarines take part in the attack on Pearl Harbor. These were the so-called Type A, or Kohiotiki-class subs, of which around 50 are believed to have been produced between 1938 and 1942. Uh, these were essentially the same variant of midget submarine that would later take part in the Sydney attack. Uh, they were around 24 metres long, armed with two torpedoes, carried a crew of two, and could travel around 20 to 25 knots, or 35 to 40 kilometres per hour, depending on whether they were surfaced or submerged. Now, the class name, Kohiotiki, actually means Target A, alluding to a deception on the Japanese Navy's part to pass off their new weapons as mere training targets. Each midget sub, when it left port, was strapped to the hull of a mother submarine, a much larger submarine, that could deploy it nearer to the objective. Uh, the crews of the submarines, as I say, two men per vessel, were, like all submariners of the period, mavericks in their own way, I think we've got to say. Uh, with the added distinction of having a kind of suicidal devotion to duty. We'll learn a bit more about the, specifically about the men that crewed the Sydney submarines in next week's episode. But suffice to say that conditions they endured were nothing short of horrendous. It has been suggested that midget submariners could last up to about 12 hours underwater, although oxygen would definitely have begun to run out in less than half that time. Add to this the highly toxic build-up of carbon dioxide and fumes from the battery, for example, and you've got a pretty nasty environment to be working in, even setting aside the ever-present possibility of detection by the enemy. 
In early May 1942, a fleet of five mother submarines set out from the Japanese-controlled Caroline Islands, three of which sported midget submarines, whilst the others carried a Yokosuka float plane that was packed in pieces inside the submarine to be assembled later on deck and launched with the aid of explosives. The force proceeded south towards Sydney. On the evening of the 16th of May, mother submarine I-29 fired on the Russian merchant vessel Wellen as it was setting out from Newcastle. Although the vessel only sustained minimal damage, all shipping between Sydney and Newcastle had to be halted for 24 hours, whilst aircraft and naval shipping attempted to locate the sub. On the 26th of May, I-29 launched its reconnaissance plane over Sydney. The pilot who was aided by substantial cloud cover, noted with amazement that there was no blackout in force and that the city, the harbour, and all the shipping it contained were fully lit up. He identified and later reported the presence of several capital ships in the harbour, including two battleships or cruisers, five other large warships, several other naval vessels, and an abundance of merchant shipping. A final reconnaissance was conducted before dawn on the 29th of May using the other float plane from mother submarine I-21. This confirmed in the minds of the Japanese attackers that Sydney would be their target and anticipated the locations of its anti-submarine defences. Dr Jones, we know there was no blackout in force at the time of the Japanese attack. Just what were Sydney's defences like at this time? Were they prepared for what was coming? There were, of course, defences in the harbour itself, most importantly an incomplete anti-submarine boom net between George's Head on Middlehead and Green Point on Inner South Head, and this presented one of the biggest obstacles for the Japanese attackers to overcome. Now, there were also several anti-submarine vessels present in the harbour, and these would definitely make their presence felt on the night in question. Now, although the Japanese couldn't identify them at the time, there were actually three major vessels present in Sydney Harbour on the night of the attack. The heavy cruisers, USS Chicago and HMAS Canberra, and the light cruiser HMAS Adelaide. There are also a number of other assorted naval vessels, including, as we shall see, a Dutch submarine, the K-9. A converted ferry, HMAS Cuttable, was alongside at Garden Island, where she was serving as accommodation for sailors transferring between ships. A hospital ship, the Orangi, had also been present in the harbour, but was fortunate enough to depart an hour before the attack took place. Uh, the six men who boarded the Japanese midget submarines on the night of the 31st of May 1942 knew that they were unlikely to survive the coming battle. One of them wrote in his farewell letter that nations that fear death will surely be destroyed. It is necessary for the youth of Japan to take notice of this. Sure to die is the spirit that will bring about final victory. And I think this is the same kind of fatalistic philosophy that had been drilled into all of Imperial Japan's fighting men. And I think Sydney Raid, therefore, forms, among many other things, a fascinating insight into the psychology of war. Mm, indeed it does. Please join us next time as we do part two of the Japanese submarine attack on Sydney in 1942. This is History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Dr Robert Jones. And we will see you next time.